0: Would you turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, Luke chapter 16. Do you have anybody in your life like an accountability person in your life? Somebody that kind of holds you accountable? Um, Somebody that kind of gets in your face and lets you know when you're offline? Or encourages you when you're going through a difficult time? Um, We desperately need that. Uh, we need that as people. Um, God changes life through vital relationships, right? And those vital relationships are so important. I was thinking of King David. And King David had had at least two men in his life. He had one, Jonathan. And Jonathan was this uh, loving and caring and encouraging and nurturing type of guy. And he... Um, was just there Jonathan could have honestly been really angered over the fact that David was going to be proclaimed to be king and this was Jonathan's rightful throne and and he didn't have any of that jealousy he didn't have any of that animosity he didn't have any of the covetousness he didn't have any of that greed he he loved David and that was such a great accountability person for him but David also had a second one if you remember the second one it was Nathan and on one of the darkest days of David's life, you know, when he had um, committed the sin with Bathsheba and gotten her pregnant, it was Nathan who came to him after David thought he may have gotten away with this. And it was Nathan that pointed his finger in, in David's face and said, you're the man, and called him to, to repent and turn. And, and, and we need those people in our lives um, Jesus was that to these disciples, and Jesus was looking to be that for these Pharisees that we're going to be looking at this morning. Jesus, ever-loving, ever-gracious, ever-compassionate, but Jesus was also confrontational, um, challenging. He wanted to expose the root issue of sin in these people's lives and the root need that they had. They needed a Savior. Would you read with me here in Luke chapter 16? Verses 14 and following, it says this, that the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, those, I'm sorry, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John, since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone forces his way into it, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So in Luke chapter 16, um, Pastor Tim preached last week in the beginning part of this um, book or this uh, this chapter, and If you remember, Jesus is preaching or teaching the disciples. He's teaching the disciples about um, possessions of this earth and what is really most important and what is valuable. And Jesus is, is trying to challenge his disciples, but he's also trying to encourage them, to edify them, to grow them. Apparently, the Pharisees are overhearing what is going on. Apparently, the Pharisees are there just listening in and we see in verse 14 that the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of these things, and they ridiculed him. You ever have somebody that just jumps into your conversation? They butt their way in. It's like, we were, you weren't in this conversation. You weren't part of it. That's exactly what the Pharisees are doing. They're kind of butting their way into this conversation with Jesus and his disciples. They're giving an opinion. Well, nobody asked for your opinion, Pharisees. You ever hear like feel like that? I guess Jesus could have responded that way. He didn't. I find it interesting that it says the Pharisees, we'll get to the who were lovers of money in a second, heard all these things. You know, there's a huge difference between hearing and listening. They heard what Jesus was saying, they heard what he was talking about, but they weren't really listening with ears to hear and hearts to be changed. They heard him and they sought to ridicule him. They heard him and sought to reject him. They heard him and sought to scorn him. Well, I think that's what we tend to do, right? Isn't that us as humanity? If you all go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, isn't that exactly what we've done from the beginning? We struggle with taking personal responsibility in our lives. We struggle with being humble. We struggle with repentance. We struggle with just admitting that we're wrong. We're so stinking prideful, aren't we? All the way back in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve had sinned, you remember what came out of it shame fear and guilt and what did they do with the shame they tried to cover it up grab those fig leaves they were naked before but now they're naked in a different way because and they're not just physically naked they feel exposed to the world because of their sin and they try by their human efforts to cover up that's what we try to do we We put makeup on the thing, we cover this thing up, and we think that it will get away. We'll get away with it, but we fail. But there's a second thing that humanity does, is not only do we cover up our shame, but we run and hide in fear. That Adam and Eve heard God and they ran from the presence of God, which is kind of crazy when you start to think about it, that this is a God who knows everything, and this is a God who's ever-present. You can't possibly run away from him. He knows everything about you. He sees everything. He's never left you. But in our shame, we try to cover up. In our fear, we try to run and hide. But then the third thing we tend to do is that in our guilt, we tend to blame. We blame others. We ridicule others and we demean others because we don't want to take personal responsibility in our lives. And that's exactly what's happening with the Pharisees, the ridicule of the Pharisees, the Pharisees who were lovers of money. They have just been exposed by Jesus's teaching. Instead of submitting and repenting and asking for forgiveness, what do they do? They ridicule him. But isn't that what we all do? The fact of the matter is that when we can't win an argument, we attack the the giver of the argument, Right? And that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing here. When you can't win a position, you're going to beat down the person. When you can't win an argument, you're going to create a diversion. When you can't defend the truth, you will try to defend yourself. And that's what I will do as well in our own humanity. And the ridicule of the Pharisees moves to the error of the Pharisees. We see this here in verses 14 and following. That what the Pharisees did was this. It says in verse 14, they were lovers of money. They heard all these things. They ridiculed him. In verse 15, and he, Jesus Christ, said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. There are three things I want you to consider about the Pharisees this morning. There's so many things we could say about the Pharisees, but we're going to just boil it down to three. One, they had the wrong value system. They had the wrong value system. The Pharisees believed that power and possessions were going to give them value in this world. That's what they went after. So when they hear the message about money, and when they hear the message about possessions, they are cut in their hearts, and instead of submitting and repenting, they what do they do? They defend themselves, and they attack the giver of this message. They have the wrong value system. I could boil this whole sermon down to one point. So you can grab this if you miss everything else. The one point is this. This is a question of authority and control in your life. It's a question of authority and control. The Pharisees did not want to give up control. And that's the problem for all of us. We want to be like God, right? All the way back to the Garden of Eden. I want to be like God, knowing good from evil. I want to be the one in control. And the Pharisees didn't want to give up their power, and they didn't want to give up their possessions. They had the wrong value system. But the second thing that we see here is that they, they had the wrong standard. It says in verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves. We just went to the communion table, and the communion table, what it reminds us is this, that you can't do it. And Christ did it for you. And you run from yourself to run to God. But what Pharisees did was that they believed that they could justify themselves. They believed that they were approved of by God because they kept the law. They believed that they deserved heaven. And therefore, grace was really not that amazing to them because grace was an obligation. God, you're obligated to do this for me because I've done all of these checklist of things. They had the wrong standard. They believed that their righteousness was primarily external and outward. It's about the things that they did. And as I look out at this congregation this morning, you're all here and we can check off the list that we came to church. And maybe some of you were in Sunday school this morning and you could check that off the list. And some of you took communion, you could check that off the list. And some people live their lives as though their religion is more of external behaviors and obligations that we do. But what they fail to recognize is this, that Sin is much deeper than just the things that we do externally. Sin goes to the very core and the heart of our lives. And Jesus is going to expose that in a moment. Not only did they have the wrong value system, but they had the wrong standard, but they also had the wrong judge. They had the wrong judge. It says in verse 15, those who justify themselves before who? Before man, before humanity. They believed that humanity was their judge. They believed that they would stand before humanity and the humanity would be the one to ultimately judge them. And so now, as I stand before you, I want to be approved of by you, I want to be accepted by you. And if I am approved of and accepted by you, then I'm doing pretty good. But it's a lie. So the Pharisees were, were hypocritical and they were insincere. The Pharisees' motives were for service to others was primarily for selfish gain. The Pharisees believed that religion was mostly external and outward. They wanted to draw attention to themselves, right? It's a selfish focus. It was mostly about them. They were consumed with their reputations. And they knew that as Jesus was talking to the disciples, he was in essence talking to them and he didn't like it. They didn't like it, the Pharisees. They wanted to be held in the highest esteem. They esteemed power and influence more than the authority of Christ in their lives. You ever have somebody that tends to overreact to criticism? I can be one that struggles with this. And when that happens, to overreact to criticism, even when it's constructive criticism, what it exposes is this, that there's pride behind it that it's about my reputation and my name more than the glory and the honor of Christ in his name. And what's the Pharisees struggling right here? They had the wrong value system, they had the wrong standard, and they stood before the wrong judge. And it's very easy for us to look back 2,000 years and say Pharisees, but the reality is this, we're all a bunch of legalists, right? We're all a bunch of Pharisees. If we really boil ourselves down, if we're being honest, The reality is is that there's very few of us, if any, that love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, because you can't possibly do that in your own self, and love others more than you love yourself, because you can't do that in and of yourself. So if we're being honest, the reality is is that all of us are sinful, selfish, prideful Pharisees in our lives. Great sermon, James. Verse 15, Jesus doesn't stop there. He confronts them. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But then he says, but God knows your hearts. And what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So on your outline, you'll see that I kind of broke down these three phrases, God knows. I want you to think about Um, the type of God that you think about uh, and the type of God that you serve. I want you to consider that this is a God who is everywhere present. The psalmist says, where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heights, you're there. If I go to the depths, you're there. I want you to consider that this is a God who knows everything. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious ways and see if there's any offensive in, way in me and, and lead me in the way of everlasting. God knows every hair on our head or not. God knows every thought that you ever did or not. God knows every word that you've ever spoken or not. God knows everything that you've tried to hide. He knows it all. God knows it all. And not only does God know the external things that you do, but God knows your hearts. Now, the heart is not this vehicle. I was talking to my son um, before, and he he talked about the uh, uh, heart being something that beats inside your chest, and that is true. That's the physical heart, but there's another type of heart that we have that the Bible talks about. It's the internal you. I see the external you that I'm looking at today, but the internal you are the thoughts, the desires, the passions, the devotions that you have, that you crave. And what Christ knows is he doesn't just know what you do externally, Pharisees, but he also knows what you do internally and why you do it. He knows, as we were talking about in our class earlier, if your love being actions externally are really coming from a heart of pure motives. Oftentimes they don't. God knows your hearts. But the third thing I want you to see is that he says that it is an abomination in the sight of God. God hates sin, God hates pride, God hates hypocrisy. There was this guy, um, I believe his name was Nieberg, and I believe it was in the 1950s. Um, He was looking at modern Christian churches at the time in the 50s, and he said this. He said that he saw it being a God without wrath, bringing men without sin into a kingdom without judgment, by a Christ without a cross. Listen to this. OK A God without wrath. Now, if that was true in the '50s, think about our church, to, our modern church today. How often is it that you actually hear a message which we're going to deal with in a moment, hell. <laughs> how often do you hear it? How often do you actually hear in a message you do hear, hear it here, but in other churches, how often do you actually hear about sin? How often do you hear about the fact that we need to run to Christ and his cross? Today, in modern churches, there's a God without wrath. God just loves everybody and he has no anger over sin. Then there are men without sin, humanity who has no sin. We don't talk about sin any longer. We want to make people feel good. And the dilemma is this. I don't want you feeling good, primarily. I want you to know Christ and have freedom in him, a God without wrath, men without sin, a kingdom, heaven, without any judgment. And if we do preach Christ today in modern churches, we're preaching Christ without his cross, no atonement. The Pharisees needed to hear that God knows you. He knows everything that you've ever done. He needed to hear that God knows not only everything that you've ever done, but every motive that's behind your heart, and that God hates sin. They needed to hear that. But what else did they need to hear? They needed to hear that their sin was being exposed by something. Verse 16, the law and the prophets were here until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached. What's the law? When he talks about the law and the prophets, he, in essence, is talking about the Old Testament. Now, remember, this is, this is 2,000 years ago, and the New Testament has not been written. So what they held in their hands was their Bible, the Old Testament scripture, and they called it the law and the prophets. So the, the Old Testament law and the prophetical writings, that's what they called their Bible at the time. And what Jesus was saying is it's, it's the law and the prophets that will help you to see the sin that's in your life. God was so very gracious to us to give us the law. The law does three things in your life. The law will show you God's standard for righteousness and holiness. What the, what the Pharisees failed to recognize is that God's standard for righteousness and holiness was much higher than they could ever achieve in their own ability. And as soon as you think you can do it, you are not understanding how holy and righteous God is. But then the second element that the law does, the law shows us of our own sinfulness. That as I open this book and I look and I am very honest that, you know, I may have gotten away with it before men, the actions that I did, but I know what was in my heart and what was in my heart was just wrong. It exposes our hearts. It shows the standard of God's holiness. It shows the sinfulness of our hearts. But then what does it do? It points us to what? The Savior. It says the law and the prophets, verse 16, were until John, this is John the Baptist, since then the good news, the gospel is there and the kingdom is to be preached. See, I can stand in this pulpit or Pastor Tim could stand in this pulpit or Pastor Doug can stand in this pulpit to preach the good news that we're alive in Christ if you trust in him that for all of those failures internally and for all of those failures externally that you could never accomplish on your own, Christ accomplished for you. It is such amazing great news that God in Christ lived out the law perfectly for you. You can never be perfect in in and of your own selves, but Christ was perfect for you. And when you failed, what Christ did, which we just symbolized in the communion table, he died for you. He took the penalty for you. Instead of running to yourself and trusting yourself, it's about running and trusting Christ. That's why he says that everyone forces his way into it. It's not that we can earn our way into heaven. You can't do that. But when people hear the good news of the gospel and they are fueled, they can't get enough of it. They want it. They're running into the kingdom. They're running into church. They're running into those places because they want to hear more of Christ. I don't know if that's your passion here this morning. Well, the Pharisees, their sin was exposed. Their sin, and maybe it's ours as well, came down to two things. Coveting and greed and divorce and sexual sin. Well, It may be interesting to you that as after he's just done this and talked about the Pharisees, he now comes to this place where he talks about divorce. He says in verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman and divorces from her husband commits adultery. It's supposedly close to about 50% of people in the United States are divorced. First marriages. I heard that the numbers are almost 70% for second marriages end in divorce. And the number even gets higher for those that are in their third divorce. And I'm not trying to um, demean anyone that has gone down that path today. What I am saying is this, that God values marriage. That God, if he could reconcile us to himself in Christ, the ultimate husband, and us, the unfaithful spouse, and he is constantly running after us and pursuing us in love. And if he could reconcile us to himself in Christ, that in our horizontal relationships, we should be modeling the gospel in our marriages, in our homes, in our families. What the Pharisees were doing was this. They were claiming that Jesus Christ minimized the law and demeaned the law. You remember as Pastor Doug and Pastor Tim have been preaching through Luke, oftentimes the Pharisees were claiming that Jesus did not have a high standard for the law. They were saying that he was hanging around with sinners and pagans and all these people. But what they failed to recognize was this, they were the ones that were minimizing the law. Jesus Christ was not minimizing it, he was exposing it, he was expanding it in his own life. He was saying that it's not just about the things you do, it's about the very heart, and I am the one that you need to look to as the law keeper. But the Pharisees in their own marriage, I won't take too much time to talk about it, but the Pharisees in their own marriage, they had an Old Testament law, not God's law, but they created this law that a man, a Pharisee, could divorce his wife even for burning the meal. I found somebody prettier than my wife, and I could divorce my wife to marry the prettier one. She didn't do what I please, so therefore I have the opportunity to divorce her. And what they were doing was this. They had minimized marriage to such an extent by their own human law that they failed to recognize that it's God who joins together. Let no one separate. They minimized the law of God for their own choices. And what Jesus was saying this, you covet and you're greedy and you have divorce and sexual sin. Probably somewhere down the road we could do a sermon on what it means about marriage and divorce and, and adultery. Those, those are important themes. I won't have time to do that today. But I want you to consider, how do you respond when somebody has authority over you? When Nathan, the accountability person, comes and sticks his finger in your face, how do you respond? How do I I think there's one of two ways that we will tend to do. I think we will either respond with ridicule and scorn or we will respond with respect and submission. What the Pharisees did was when they were confronted with their sin, instead of repenting and turning to God, what they did was they tried to value themselves. They tried to protect their own um, name and their own reputation and they rejected Christ and they scorned him. So when you get confronted, when I... When somebody critiques us and criticizes us, are we quick to defend truth or are we quick to defend ourselves? The Pharisees were very quick to defend themselves and by so they ridiculed God and scorned. So what Jesus did was he tied this all together in the story of an application. This rich man and Lazarus, read with me this passage here. In the rich man and Lazarus, and it says this, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. And at the gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. You know, once again, Jesus, what are you doing? I'm not following you here. We, We were just talking about money. Then you got into the law. Then you talked about my marriages. Now you're talking about somebody that's died and going to hell? You're talking about a rich man and a poor man? Here's a point. What Jesus is trying to expose to us is that there are only two religions in this world. There are only two destinies. Only two religions. There are only two destinies. He says in verse 23, and in Hades... And in torment, he, the one man, the rich man, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish. These two men have died, and now they have gone to different places. The rich man has gone to this place called Hades or hell. The the poor man went to heaven. Now, don't mistake the fact that it wasn't the fact that this guy is rich, that's why he went to hell. Abraham was an extremely wealthy man, and he didn't go to hell. It's not about money that sends us to hell. It's about the love of money. It's about making money, the most important theme. And what Jesus is getting at with these people is that you're making money, the most important theme in your life. There are only two religions. There are only two destinies, heaven or hell. The second thing I think I see from this passage is not only that there are only two destinies, but there is, when a person's destiny is fixed in this life, there are no second chances. It says in verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember when you were in your lifetime, this time, you received good things and Lazarus likewise received bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you're in anguish. And besides all of this, between us is this great chasm, the great divorce, right? The great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. What Jesus is saying, and I know this is hard to hear, what Jesus is saying is this. There are only two destinies, people. Heaven or hell. The determination of that destiny is here today and in this lifetime. And that is fixed. If you have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you die today without him, I am telling you that there's an eternity waiting for you and it's not heaven. That the only eternity that, hell, that heaven is there for is for those that have trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Pharisees, you're focusing on this world and you're failing to recognize that it's about Christ. He says a third thing. Not only are there only two religions not only is there a destiny that's fixed, there's no second chances, but the third thing is that a person's salvation is not merely based on correct information or knowledge of the truth, but about submission to the truth. Look here in verse 24, 27, and 30. He calls Abraham father. He says, Father Abraham, verse 24. Father, verse 27. And then he says, no, Father Abraham, in verse 23. He knows who Abraham is. He has a knowledge of Abraham. You know, Father Abraham from the Old Testament, he has a correct knowledge. But salvation is not based on having a correct knowledge alone. He actually even uses the word repent. One of those words we don't like to talk about either today. Um, Repent at the end of verse 30. He knows about repentance. He has a correct knowledge of the truth, but it's not enough. It's about submission to the truth. You know what jumped out at me this week as I was reading this? I actually put it in red in my notes. In verse 24, he says, the man who's in hell says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Great. But what's the next phrase he said? And send Lazarus. You remember I told you that this whole sermon is about control and power and authority? Even as this man is in hell, he is trying to order God. We do the same. Look here again in verse 27. He says, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house. Once again, he's ordering God. Verse 30, no, Father. He's the one that's in hell and he is still rejecting God's call and he is trying to run the game himself rather than submitting to God's authority. And he, in essence, says this. Remember back to the garden, the three things, shame, fear, and guilt? And with guilt, we tend to blame. Look at the blame here. In verse 30, no father, Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. What he is, in essence, is saying is this. Your Bible's not good enough. That you need to do something to save me. And I am in hell here because you didn't do enough, God. Because God said here, no, you know, if they hear Moses, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, they will never be convinced. If they don't hear the proclamation of the word and turn, you can raise somebody from the dead and they will not turn. I didn't tell you, you know what Lazarus' name means? God is my help. God is my help. Now, this is not the same Lazarus, but you remember a story just months down the road from here? a friend of Jesus, his name was Lazarus. And Lazarus died, you remember? John chapter 11. And when Lazarus died, what happened? Jesus Christ went to the tomb, he wept, and what did he do? He raised him from the dead. You remember he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who comes to me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Now, if this rich man is saying is true, tons of people should have turned and the Pharisees should have turned to Christ, but they didn't. If you read in John chapter 12, you know what the Pharisees wanted to do? They wanted to kill Lazarus, and they wanted to kill Christ. The fact is is that nobody is ever going to be turned just because they have a correct knowledge of the truth. They're going to turn because they submit to the truth. Last point I want you to consider in this section is this. A person can be very deceived about their eternal destiny. This rich man could never have imagined that after all of the great things that had happened in his life that he would be dying and going to hell. In Matthew 7, it reminded me of this passage. You remember this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not cast out demons in your name? And did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. All right, so how do I bring this thing all home and try to wrap this up this morning? How are we made right with God? What Jesus says is that it is impossible for you to be made right with God through your own character or conduct. You can't do it. You fail. That internally you sin and externally you sin Every single day. You don't, I don't think you have a perfect hour. I don't. In my life. And if I don't even have a perfect hour in my life, how am I ever going to redeem myself? I can't. I fail. And instead of justifying myself, or justifying myself before men, God calls us to be justified in Christ. The justification is by grace alone. God has been pouring out his grace to you. It's through faith alone, it's because of Christ alone. Justification is this theological term. Stay with me for a moment. It's this theological term in which God gives his free grace to sinners. He pardons all of your sins and accepts you as righteous in his sight. It's not based on your character or conduct, but it's based on the character and conduct of Christ. And what he did was that Christ lived every day perfectly for you so that that could be credited to your account. So that when you feel shame, Christ covered it. When you feel fear, Christ knows where you are. He wants to wrap his arms around you. And when you feel guilt, he wants to give you his grace to tell you that it's been taken care of. The payment is there for you. Just cling to me. Christ fully and completely satisfied the justice of God. And the only requirement is faith. Faith. And even that faith that we give to God is a gift given to us this morning. So in essence, what we come to is this. The kingdom comes by only one person, the person and work of Christ. We must be willing to give up our control and submit to him. And if you have never repented, and to be honest, all of us should be repenting daily because we sin daily. Repent means to renounce your trust in your own abilities, stop trying to be the perfect person, because you can't be, and rely entirely on the person and work of Christ. The writer to the Hebrews said something interesting. He said, um, today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts as they did in Mirabah." I said that people have two reactions to truth, two reactions to the gospel. They will either reject and scorn or they will respect and submit. I pray that I'm looking at people that will turn their eyes upon Jesus and look at him. There's a song that's been running through my head this week and it's this song by Sovereign Grace, I guess it is. I come by the blood, I come by the cross, for your mercy flows from hands pierced for me. For I don't stand in my righteousness. My every hope rests on what Christ has done. I pray that that is your truth today. And Lord, I pray.